Hugh, Hugh, Bishop of, of Lincoln. <clears throat> That's who we're commemorating today. As everybody gets settled here, we can move to pray the collect together. You, you have not seen this collect, not in today's morning service or in the next morning service. Uh, in fact, you may have never heard of Hugh, and if you pray morning prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, you may not have seen Hugh there this morning, but he is officially commemorated today. He died in the year 1200, and uh, on the 16th, the Catholic Church actually commemorates Hugh on the 16th, but we we co- commemorate him on the 17th, and therefore you, you don't necessarily see his name. But let's pray his collect. O holy God, you endowed your servant and bishop Hugh of Lincoln, with wise and cheerful boldness, and taught him to commend the discipline of holy life to kings and princes. Grant that we also, rejoicing in the good news, and fearing nothing but the loss of you, may be bold to speak the truth in love, In the name of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who lives and reigns with you, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Is is there actually someone in this room who is familiar with Hugh and his life? We have one lover of Hugh. Yeah, let's, uh, let's look at Hugh here. There he is way over on the side, and um, I get to use this neat little pointer here to point out a few things. You don't, I don't need to point out the fact that he's all dressed in bishop's robes and everything is gold and expensive and telling a story that is exactly against who he was. He was a very simple monk, and he really didn't care for all the regalia and the pomp and splendor of the life of a bishop, but he was called into it, almost forced into it, and so there he is dressed up to play the part. You see also, if you look very closely, look at that person jumping out of the cup right there. That's kind of strange. To me, it's strange anyway, but a story went around that Hugh, uh, as he was saying Mass, uh, looked into the cup and saw the Holy Child of God, and that represents it right there. And this this swan that you just heard uh, um, Matt talk about uh, is another story that I would like to tell you, but I'm not sure I'll have time. And it's so much fun that this wild swan came and made friends with Hugh. But uh, let's see if we end up with enough time for for that story. 
Um, I, I would like to show you, because most of us are not familiar with England, you can see at the, at the red, the big red thing here, that that's about where Lincoln is. You see it's north of London. And we'll be mentioning Witham. Witham is where uh, St. Hugh's Monastery was. He built a Carthusian monastery there. He was called from the Grand Chartreuse, which is right about in there. You see Milan there, and it's right about here. And he was born in a little town of Avalon, which is someplace very, very close to that, and also close to Grenoble, if you know a little bit about southern France. You can see this is all still in France, but very close to Switzerland. So that's, that's where he came from, down there. But uh, actually, Europe and all of this area was uh, quite different, I think, in those days than it is today. Um, we just prayed a collect that gives you kind of a hint of who he was. So other than Matt, the rest of us could kind of get an idea of why he's honored as a saint by reading that collect. If you happen to pick it up, uh, pick up the handout on the way in, you would see that the collect at the top, if you need a reminder of you know, what some of those factors might be, but let's hear from you if you can see in the collect what you would expect Hugh to be like. Somebody bold will, <laughs> or he had a sense of humor. Where do you see that? Tell me. Oh yeah. All right. Cheerful. Yes, he did have a sense of humor, and he played with kings in ways that everybody thought was strange. What else do you see there? Yeah, he was bold, yeah, so he did speak it out, but uh, he taught him to commend the discipline of a holy life to kings and princes. Now that's, um, that's a mild way of saying what he did. <laughs> he was very forthright in, in the way he talked to them. But then... It says, grant that we also, and that's the whole point of commemorating a saint, isn't that right? That we can kind of imitate the way of life that they were able to uh, manage by the help of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. And so we can look at that life and say, hey, I would like to be like that. And I would like to be able to have the ability to speak the words of truth in love, even to those who are in authority over me, if only I could do it humbly. <clears throat> because this is how Hugh operated in his life. But how did he become so courageous in his way of approaching all people? How was he able to be both courageous and bold 
and loving and kind to people that he had to confront. I think there's a clue to that question in, in understanding a little bit about what the Carthusians were about. If you happen to have seen the movie um, Into Great Silence, made by a German director, uh, he just goes into the Carthusian monastery and, uh, and there it is. Um, he goes into the monastery of Grand Chartreuse and takes lots and lots of video footage and shows it. But since they live in complete, strict silence and solitude, there aren't too many words in the script of the movie. Carthusian monks live in the strictest silence and solitude. They have, they've been doing so for about a thousand years. And what they do today is almost exactly what they did a thousand years ago. They spend most of their time in their cubicles when occasionally, of course, they do spend time out working. They provide their own living as a community. And uh, uh, they, so they pray in their rooms and they pray together. They, have, they meet together several times during the day and there's liturgy that goes on. They actually get up at about 3 o'clock in the morning and they have a special liturgy there that includes chanting psalms in Latin and reading the scriptures in the vernacular. I'm going to ask Mark if he would move to two minutes and eight seconds and uh, look at that. And we're going to just watch about three minutes of this. I hope you can see it. There's, we're in the cell. That's a kneeler, by the way, and a gentleman praying at it.
Okay, mal. If you visit the Carthusian website um, and look for information about the rule of St. Bruno, the founder, you will find this. The only goal of the Carthusian way is contemplation. By the power of the Spirit, living as unceasingly as possible in the light of the love of God for us, made manifest in Christ. They go on saying, this implies a purity of heart or charity. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Monastic tradition also calls this goal pure and continuous prayer. The only goal. This is what Hugh lived under for 30 or 35 years. He started when he was quite young in another monastery but um, we will, I'll tell you some stories which include how he got into the Carthusian monastery. When he arrived, though, he, rep he reports that when he prayed contemplatively, he only beat the air, he says, until he who watches over Israel without slumber or sleep, laid his hand on him and fed him with hidden manna, so fine and so plentiful that the pleasures of life seemed paltry after the first taste of it. This is his description of contemplative prayer. Could it be that living for 30 years in regular communication with God, as this is described, could bring about an ability to speak to others with deep truth in your heart? I think it's possible to live in a monastery without walls. I'm going to move to a couple of facts and stories about who this Hugh was. His mother was named Anne. She, was, uh, she had a reputation for holiness but she was especially interested in working that holiness out by caring for lepers. Here's a very wealthy lady, and her main interest was caring for the lowest and most uncared for people in society. This is the way she 
as she said, worshipped Christ in his limbs. Her dedication to loving the loveless and forsaken made an impression on young Hugh that he never forgot and in adulthood began to imitate. Hugh's father, whose name was William, by the way, was a knight. And after his wife's early death, he forsake his, forsook his knighthood and left his wealthy estate in Avalon and entered a, an Augustinian monastery nearby, taking with him eight-year-old Hugh. It was possible in those days. Later, Hugh, still a boy, was assigned by the monks to take care of his dying father. What impact do you think that would make on a young man to minister to his dying father, to be caring for him and his needs and all the things that happen when people's bodies begin to break down. I wonder if this waiting with the dying could help just about any of us to understand what it is to move toward God, would help us to live in this place that's someplace between heaven and earth. Well, Young Hugh was in a, a, a he, he was told that he would, would um, <clears throat> should go to a church and help the priest there. And, be, and he be, actually became a deacon at about age 18 or 19 or so and was assigned to doing all kinds of parish work, including preaching. We don't know at quite what point he became a priest, but while he was there in the church, he was hit with a serious temptation, and her name was Zuleika, which means beautiful, by the way. Only a few biographers include these lines, which Hugh wrote about Zuleika. Zuleika's lovely hair that vied with gold was partly veiled and partly strayed around her ivory neck. Her little ear, a curved shell, bore up the golden mesh. Under the smooth, clear white brow, she had a curved black eyebrows without a crisscross hair in them. <clears throat> and these disclosed and heightened the clear white of her skin. Her nose, too, not flat or arched, not long or snub, but beyond the fineness of geometry. <laughs> with light, soft breath, with the sweet sense of incense, the gentle pout of her lips, seemed to challenge kisses. <laughs> Perhaps motivated 
by the desire to escape temptation, he requested his rector to let him go to the grand chartreuse, chartreuse Carthusian monastery in the French Alps where he could live a life of rigorous prayer and asceticism that he craved. But his rector refused to let him go. It seems that Hugh's sermons were too penetrating and his lifestyle commendable and his humble service too valuable. And the rector couldn't imagine this handsome and vibrant young deacon cloistered in the hills, praying his life away. He forbade Hugh to go. At some point, the attraction to Zuleika became too much for Hugh. And he fled from his youthful lust and knocked at the door of the followers of St. Bruno, and they took him in. He was not living in Chartreuse very long before he realized that he brought his enemy with him. He could not get his mind off of Zuleika. The lovely features that he had written about appeared in his prayer time and would not let him rest. Finally, he cried out in prayer, by thy passion, cross, and life-giving death, deliver me. After which he was much comforted by a vision of his old prior Basil, who had recently died. This old friend stood by him, radiant in face and robe, and said with a gentle voice, Dearest son, how is it with thee? To which he responded, good father and most kind nurser, the law of sin and death in my members troubles me even to death, and except I have thy wanted help, thy lad will even die. And Basil answered, yes, I will help thee. And then he took a razor in his hand and cut out an internal and inflamed hue tumor and flung it away and blessed his patient and disappeared, leaving no trace of the surgery. After this, Hugh reports that his flesh continued to trouble him, but its assaults were easy to scorn and repress, though always obliging him to walk humbly. Here's another story, it, uh, a notable part of Hugh's life, like Francis of Assisi, he cared for lepers. And so in doing so, he followed the example of his mother, Anne, who made a habit of caring for lepers. And as a, a side note, it's kind of interesting to me at least, that in the Latin Vulgate, Jerome mistranslated Isaiah 53, verse 4, we esteemed him as it were a leper. Instead of, we esteemed him stricken. This provoked devout medieval Christians to believe that by caring for lepers, they were caring for Christ himself. Hugh often visited the local leper colony, washed their bodies with his own hands, kissed them, served them meat and drink, and gave them money generously. Though the swollen, black, deformed faces, eyeless or lipless, were a horror to behold, 
To you they seemed lovely in the body of their humiliation. And as a bishop, he invited them to his room and told them that though now they were desolate and afflicted, they would be rewarded forever. Hugh also loved children. One biographer writes, he loved to romp with them. He would coax half words of wondrous wit from their stammering little lips. They made, cl he, they made close friends with him at once, just as did the birds at which used to come from the woods and orchards and perch upon him and get, or at least ask for food. And there are many other stories that tell of his love for and tenderness toward children and animals. The most notable may be that of the wild swan that became his friend and protector. The fawn would have, swan, I'll just say briefly, would have nothing to do with anybody else. He was wild. He landed one day in the pond in front of the palace in, in Lincoln after he had become a, a bishop. And that swan uh, was attracted to Hugh. Hugh met with him, and after that they bonded like, uh, you know, your favorite dog or something like that. But the, the swan would have nothing to do with anybody else. If anyone tried to come near him when he was asleep and the swan was around, they were in big trouble. <laughs> devotion, he had a strong devotion to in the Eucharistic, especially the Eucharistic service. So as a priest, he would say mass, but he recited the words of the liturgy very slowly and reverently. This was not necessarily common at the time. He never hurried through the mass or mumbled as was the habit of some priests. He treated the consecrated elements with great devotion, and he said Mass as often as possible, though at the time it was not a daily occurrence as it is for most priests today. Huge, Hugh, huge, Hugh courageously <laughs> confronted, uh, confronted unrighteousness. And this is what the, uh, the collect, refers to, um, <clears throat> his, uh, his ability to confront unrighteous behavior of authorities, including his own superiors. His, um, okay, here is one of the rebukes that he gives to Henry II. Henry II was the one, the, the English king, who invited him into the country as you know, he had to come up from France and through, and he, he was supposed to build the, the, uh, the, um, the uh, monastery at Witham. That was the job he was given. And then Henry II, as part of penance for doing something terrible, I don't know what, was told that he had to pay for that operation. So that's how many monasteries were built, by the way, as gifts from kings and lords and so on. Who, uh, who were um, <laughs> asked to give their money as a penance. So Henry II, uh, he, he was not doing his job in assigning bishops to the various parishes around 
to the various, uh, uh, what are they called? We just joined one. Diocese, thank you very much. <laughs> you guys are good. <laughs> so he wouldn't actually assign the bishop there because then all the money that was supposed to go to the bishopric and building the whole diocese was, uh, was, was able to come to him. And they could use it for various purposes. I mean, the king would use it for various purposes of his own rather than building the church. And so, knowing this, he meets with King Henry II and says to him, What is the need, most wise prince, of bringing dreadful death on so many souls just to get the empty favor of some person? And the loss of so many folks redeemed by Christ's death. You invoke God's anger and you heap up tortures for yourself hereafter. Not too many people would talk to the king that way. Richard I follows Henry II. You remember he's called the lion-hearted because of his love for battle. When the king attempted to raise troops and finances for his involvement in the Third Crusade, Hugh stood against him, and he and other bishops <clears throat> were expected to raise money from their parishioners, but Hugh refused to participate and dared to confront the king to his face about the matter. Here's another example <laughs> on Hugh's deathbed. He's traveling from, uh, from France back to England at the time. And uh, he got sick on the way, and here he is on his deathbed. Uh, and the archbishop, in other words, his boss, comes in and talks to him as he's, uh, as he's dying. And part of his discussion is... Why didn't you treat me nicer while you were living? <laughs> because he never was very, he wasn't able to support any of the bishop's endeavors because usually they were tainted with selfishness and greed and other things. And so the bishop, the archbishop came to him and, and complained as he was dying. And he responded, it is quite true. That is a quite true that I reprimanded you and I disagreed with you. And I see it well when I ponder all the hidden things of our conscience that I have often provoked you to angers, but I do not find a single reason for repenting of it. But I know this, that I must grieve that I did not correct your behavior, behavior oftener and harder. But if my life should have to be passed longer with you, I most firmly determine under the eyes of our all-seeing God to do it much oftener than before. I can remember how, I can remember how to comply with you. I have very often been coward enough to keep back what I ought to have spoken out to you, and which you would not well have brooked to hear. 
And so by my own fault, I have avoided offense to you rather than to the Father which is in heaven. On this account, therefore, it is that I have not only transgressed against God heavily and unbishoply, but against your fatherhood and primacy. And I humbly ask pardon for this. <laughs> Are we up to that kind of courage? I don't know. <laughs> there are many more stories. I won't be able to tell them all. I have no idea what time it is. Um, but uh, 10.40. 10.40. Thank you so much. Uh, instead of telling more stories, I'll just give you this list of what he is uh, respected for, what he is commended for. He practiced personal holiness in public and private life. He raised the sense of dignity of the spiritual and religious work in England. He helped people understand that moral obligations were binding on all, whatever their station in life. He was a peacemaker at home and abroad, restraining the excesses of tyrants and opposing England's constant war policy against France and the Muslims. He confronted and checked the overgrown power of the English kings and laid down limits and principles which resulted in the Magna Carta after his death. In the arts, he fully developed the early English style of architecture, and he was constantly encouraging learning, supporting schools, libraries, historians, and poets. Now, I, I think our interest here is not really the stories themselves, but it's focusing on what made Hugh the good man that he was, the strong person that he was, that he could actually live his last 20 years as a bishop in public life and being so honest and straightforward and strong that he was. What made him this way? Could it have been 30 to 35 years living in the kind of prayer that the Carthusians lived with? Hughes says this about his prayer. I do not know what he can feel to be bitter, who with inner palate of the heart has learnt by continuous meditation to feed on the sweetness of this sweet one. In his documentary, uh, Philip Groening would often put a black screen up, and on the black screen it would say the words taken from the book of Jeremiah, you have seduced me, and I have been seduced. They say he was, um, this Hugh, 
was very repentant and very honest in his confessions and open in his confessions with others and told people and was willing to say openly, I suppose that's the way we get the story of Zuleika, that he was that honest. But I think becoming that honest with himself allowed him also to be that honest with others. And becoming that honest with himself is very likely part of the work of this contemplative prayer. There are experiments done these days, as you know, with the brain and scanning the brain. And so people have, doctors have actually scanned the brains of those who are engaged in this kind of meditation and prayer. And they find a tremendous amount of activity in the prefrontal lobe which is exactly the place that impacts our behaviors. But as you well know, the things that come out of our mouths are more often than not, not premeditated. The things that we end up doing or not doing seem to come from a place that is mysterious and hidden and deep within our, our minds and we say our hearts, yes, but these days we know that scientifically that this is really activity that's going on in the brain. And to settle into meditation is to move into this place where we sense God in us. Uh, Paul was always saying, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. Hundreds of times in his epistles, he's trying to remind us that our life is wrapped up in the fact that Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. Now, trying to imagine that is a difficult thing. We don't usually go around walking from place to place and doing our jobs, realizing that we are somehow encased in Christ, and that our bodies enclose Christ in us. And yet that's the fact of the matter. Uh, we talked about the temple this morning, and Christ talked about it in the, in the gospel. It was supposed to be the dwelling place of God, but Paul's seeing, I mean, he was probably... Uh, still alive perhaps when the temple was totally destroyed as, as Christ predicted that it would be, that was supposed to be the place that you would go to to find the presence of God. But Paul said, no, that body that you live in is the temple. This group that you worship with is the temple. And so if we look together at Psalm 84, I'll go through it a bit until our time runs out here. And we can just quietly settle into the kind of prayer that the Carthusians were intent upon doing and that Hugh did and that probably changed his life. Let me ask you to like I ask the children downstairs, only you can find that quiet place within you.
I can't make you find that quiet place, but you children can find it all by yourselves. And so I'm going to ask you to put your feet on the floor. Put your hands on your legs, perhaps facing upward to show your receptiveness to the Holy Spirit coming in and being Christ in you. And in Psalm 84, we are with a community of pilgrims walking toward Jerusalem. We're intent upon visiting Mount Zion and the temple upon which it is which is built upon it, and a place of prayer for all people. We know that this building houses the holy place and the holy of holies. It is the dwelling place of God that we seek. And so we put our faces toward Jerusalem as they are now, as a company of believers, we begin our journey. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My soul, my inner being, my heart are singing for joy to be with the living God. Even the sparrow, look, a sparrow. The humblest, the most common of birds, small and brown and mostly unremarkable. The sparrow finds a place to settle down right at your altar and build his nest. It is as if all of nature, all of creation instinctively gra gravitates to your lovely house, Lord. You are the king of creation. You own it all, precious Lord and God. So blessed, so blessed are those who dwell in your house. All of us in this room, a spiritual community, a contemplative community, living at peace with God in that quiet place within our, within our bodies, 
our heart and our flesh. Our heart and our flesh sing for joy. Our whole physical body, the same body that Jesus had, is full. Every cell filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are they who dwell in your house. Ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength, whose energy, whose every bit of ability to move is in you. And in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. It's the one thing. It's the one thing that we want. We desire nothing else, really. But to be faced toward your house, O Lord, toward your presence, even within us, certainly among us. And as we go, we go through the valley of Baca together. There are tears. And the Spirit of God makes it a place of springs. In the midst of our tears, the early rain Warm and fresh comes down, forms pools, gives us refreshment. And we go from strength to strength. And each one of us appears before God at his home in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, Hear our prayer. Give ear to us, O God of Jacob. Selah.